from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 93 with guest Chris Jackson. Recorded Monday, January 5th, 2008. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the guys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. You're listening to Run As Radio. I am your host, Richard Campbell. With me as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. That's me. Hey, everybody. Richard, how are you? Are you dug out? Dug out. Um, I was dug out, and now I'm snowed back in. Actually, looking outside, it's been shifting between snow and rain. So I was able to get out. People, most people probably don't know. I have a, about a little more than a quarter mile driveway, and I actually can get snowed in because of how steep the driveway is on two hills. So I've been parking my truck, four wheel drive truck, by the way, and I need to park it out by the road and use an ATV to get out to the truck on those days. <laughs> so, you know, it's a it's an adventure. Um, it's a great spot, but you know, it has its, it has its little minor challenges. For me, it's just shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. It just keeps snowing in Vancouver. I'm going to die. Yep. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's been doing the same thing here. Ah, it's all good. It's nice to actually be home for a change. We did quite a conference run in the fall, so it's uh, great to be doing regular old fashioned shows the way we always do them. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're on the road enough, um, then you get to the point where it's like, I don't want to be on the road anymore. I just want to be home. Then you get snowed in for five days and you're like, wow, I wish I was at a conference, you know? So, <laughs> I wish uh, I could get out. Yeah, it's the, I think it's the anywhere but here kind of mentality, right? Absolutely. Hey, we got some hilarious feedback from those two Mark Manassi shows we did at Dev Connections, which were oh, yeah. barely shows. I think we were both mostly just trying to make each other laugh the whole time. Uh, there were barely shows, but they were uh, – well, no, they were totally shows. They were just kind of uh, um, uh, barely organized. I've, I've come to appreciate that Mark Manassi and I are a dangerous mix, that we just tend to get off track instantly when we talk to each other. Well, Mark's always a fun guy to talk to. He always has – he has interesting opinions, and they tend to be actually very thoughtful opinions. You know, you sort of listen behind the behind the words and even directly to the words at some point. Um, you know, he always has a pretty well-informed and interesting point of view. Absolutely. And it was very interesting to me to hear how he thought about, uh, you know, going to Tech Ed EMEA and actually picking in sessions on Windows 7. Uh, it, the Windows 7 traction is really exciting. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, sort of a different take on how the beta is being managed this time around and stuff that's pretty interesting as well. And really, um, you know, it looks like there's some pretty cool stuff in there. Absolutely. All right, why don't we hop over to our guest here. Chris Jackson is the technical lead for the Windows Application Experience SWAT team. He has worked with enterprise customers around the world to help them investigate and mitigate application compatibility issues, as well as providing instructional training about Windows application compatibility for numerous industry events. Chris has been a software developer for over 12 years, five of them spent with Microsoft. His certifications include the MCP, MCAD, and the MCSD, and he was formerly a Microsoft Windows MVP, known in the community for his technical insight and problem-solving abilities. He currently resides in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hello, how are you? Uh, good to talk to you again. And we met at Tech at EMEA as well, as I recall. Yes, we did indeed. And at the time, I did not know that the SWAT team exists. 
So I think you probably should start there with, so what is the SWAT team? Sure. Well, the SWAT team, our goal is to help enterprise customers who are trying to get to uh, a, you know, a more modern version of Windows than they are currently. Either they're coming from 2000 or they're coming from XP, and they're going to, well, today they're going to be going to Vista. You know, soon enough, they'll be going to Windows 7. Uh, and we're you know, a, a very closely tied with the product team to try and get that enterprise feedback into the application compatibility equation. Because while we can go to the local Best Buy just as easily as you can to buy all of the things that uh, are available commercially for sale to the general public, it's a little bit harder to understand the impact we have in compatibility uh, in the enterprise unless we get in there. Uh, you may not have heard of us because there are only five of us in the entire planet. So there's not a whole lot of us. You know, we try and get as much coverage as we can, uh, but we you know we certainly can't be all places all the time. Yeah, dude, you're outnumbered. <laughs> well, the, a big part of our goal is to try and help people uh, get better at what they're doing. Uh, and the thing I always say about my job is there's enough work out there uh, that there's never any reason for me to hold back information and, and hoard it uh, in order to try and preserve my job. My job is not going away anytime soon. <laughs> sure. So what are, what's some of the low-hanging fruit from an application compatibility standpoint? What are the common threads that you seem to be addressing over and over again? Well, the big thread probably is no surprise is just running as a standard user, running as a non-admin. Uh, you know, with Windows Vista and also with Windows 7, most people, even if they are a member of the administrators group, don't run with their full credentials all the time. Uh, and a lot of people, in fact, are using the opportunity to try and get away from being a member of the administrators group altogether uh, because there are a lot more mitigations and fixes available in Windows Vista and Windows 7 to help you get there. Right. Uh, but there's still a lot of legacy software that assumes that you can just do whatever you want to on the machine whenever, whenever you want, uh, because, of course, everyone is an admin, uh, because back in the day they used to be. And that's probably the biggest problem is just going through and addressing that. And we're talking specifically about custom apps built internally to the to the company. This is not so much the shrink wrap app world. Uh, depending on the shrink wrap you've got. I mean, there's certainly plenty of shrink wrap apps that aren't broad distribution, and even ones that are. Uh, they still have some little, you know, dusty old corners of code that have been, you know, in the product, uh, you know, for, you know, 10, 20 years uh, that, you know, are, you know, every now and then surface themselves as, as like, oh, here's a bug in here that uh, I didn't realize I had. I mean, I found them all over the place. I found bugs in uh, inside of different parts of Windows itself, you know, running without permissions. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, no kidding. So, I, I, I mean, right off the bat, I'm thinking this sort of the classic you're still writing to the the global parts of the registry. You're still trying to write to INI files in System 32. You're still yeah. trying to write anything to System 32. Are those are the usual sins we're talking about? Yeah, those are the big ones. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that you can write what we call a Lua bug. Um, you know, they just they're, because there are so many ways, it can be difficult to squash them out in very you know in some of the complex software that's out there. But for the most part, it's not that people are trying to do these incredibly complicated things. It's they need to store a file somewhere. Hey, here's a directory. It happens to be sitting in program files, but it has my name on it. So what a good place to write stuff. Right. Right. And it's not, yeah. But we've been, how many years have you guys been preaching this basic requirement? We're not supposed to be doing this. We're not supposed to be doing it for a long time. Well, it's. It's kind of like in the, the analogy I've been using lately is, you know, it's kind of like if you're driving on a road 
and the road has a speed limit sign that says, please go 55. But there's guaranteed to never, ever be a police officer on that road. Right. <laughs> so, of course, you know, what are people going to do? They're going to go as fast as they want to go. And we suddenly put a whole lot of police officers up there so that you couldn't go above 55. And that suddenly caught a lot of people off guard. Yes, there were some people that were always obeying the speed limit. Um, but A, a lot of people didn't read the signs. And the ones that did were like, well, why would I? Because I'm never going to be in a situation where that'll matter. Right. And suddenly they are in a situation where they matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of empathy for the people who write this stuff because, I mean, they're, it's hard enough to write software without us expecting everyone to read all the rules start to finish. So what we want to do is help people understand which of the rules really matter and the principles behind them so that you're not going against a huge list of rules, but instead saying, hey, here's the goal, right? And if you just sort of keep that in mind, you'll probably do pretty well in writing software in general. So just some sort of key core techniques that you need to use to uh, to get over those things. Of course, that all presumes that we've got a code base to work from that we're going to recompile the app, right? Exactly. Sure. And we can we can do a lot of fixing without actually touching that, though. So how do we do that? Well, we have in, and have had built into Windows since Windows 2000 this shim infrastructure, which until re you know Windows Vista, really not many other people used. Um, but the idea is we have this technique that allows us to go in and, you know, intercept calls to the operating system and run some additional code before we get there. And because we're running some additional code, we can change what you're asking for. So let's say, for example, that you're trying to write something to the root of the drive, right? Now, we in Windows Vista and Windows 7, we have this feature called File and Registry Virtualization uh, that covers rights to program files, the Windows directory, and the program data directory. So if you're trying yeah. to write anything that's non-executable there, we'll automatically catch it and we'll stick it someplace else. It happens at the driver level. It's very transparent, and it works really, really well. Uh, right. But if you're trying to write to the root of the drive, we don't cover that. Oh, uh, we can intercept that with a shim and say, okay, if you're trying to write this path name, C colon whack, you know, data file dot txt, before I get to the create file API, which would, you know, create the file in the first place, I can modify that argument and say, nope, let's put this somewhere in the user's directory instead. Okay. And then we hand it over to the actual API. So what before the API would say no to, it can now say yes to, not because we're loosening security, but because we've just modified the argument before we handed it over to something the operating system could say yes to. Sure. So what... For an IT person who's, you know, maybe on the on the support and infrastructure side and, and or maybe responsible for, you know, making applications work, but is not the development staff, what what's the process that the IT person goes through to solve these compatibility problems? Is there a set of standard steps that you that the five of you uh, teach people to follow or, um, you know, some critical, you know, pieces of knowledge that people can really, you know, maybe take away from this show to help them get a good start? Absolutely. Well, that's certainly something we, we're continuing to try and do better at because, you know, we have a lot of material out there today that's designed for the person who wants to become an expert at this um, because okay. we had to go from zero information to lots of information. It's easier to, you know, believe it or not, it's easier talking to Microsoft engineers to develop a what I refer to as the Harvard-level education uh, than it is to develop the trade school education. Um, because we can look, take the technical details and just basically surface them in, a, in an accessible way. 
What sure. we're trying to do now is get to a point where, hey, you know, if you don't want to be an expert, but you just want to cover most of the problems you come across, what can you do? You know, a lot of that is let's really leverage the tools we have. The application compatibility toolkit, for example, contains a tool called standard user analyzer. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been talking about standard user issues as one example of a compatibility problem. Well, that one's really easy. You know, if you have a problem running as a standard user, right, that's pretty easy to verify. You know, if you run it and it doesn't work, you right-click run as admin and it does, that's probably your problem. And if so, then you can use this tool, point it at the executable, run it. The tool will catch all of the things that it's doing bad and additionally will suggest some mitigations for a lot of the problems that it detects. Gotcha. So now you don't even have to read the documentation. You can just use the tool, and that can get you quite a ways. That's yeah. A bunch of this stuff is now totally visible in Vista, right? I mean, you just right click on any shortcut, and you could see, you know, run in XP mode, and so forth. And those parts of the shims. Yeah, that's the same infrastructure, right? So we have the ability to do, you know, we've got, you know, seven hundred some odd shims in Windows Vista. Um, a lot of those are what we call our specific shims, which is shims that are designed for a specific application. Uh, so the default view of compatibility administrator filters that down to about 300 or so we call general purpose shims, you know, things to fix, uh, you know, hey, this thing, if you're doing this thing that's not going to be acceptable, then this shim will align to that fix. Right. Um, but, but that can be fairly complicated. It's good that we have those, but, you know, we don't ha- still haven't documented all 300 some odd general purpose shims. You know, we're at about 50 that we fully documented. Um, you know, so a lot of them you're sort of picking up by name. Uh, the, the next question is, well, how do we take that? Because 300 is still a pretty big number. 50 documents is still a pretty big number and consolidate that into something, you know, someone could do. And that's what that compatibility tab exposes is, you know, the most common ones that you would use. You know, ones that don't require configuration to get their job done that are just if you click it, you turn it on and it automatically starts changing some behavior. Right. So, uh, what about the program compatibility assistant? What, what exactly is this? I've heard about it, but I've never used it myself. Sure. Well, you don't have to actively use it. It actually pops on all the time. But the, the idea here is, and this, this is probably more of a, either a consumer feature or a, a testing feature. Um, but, you know, through, you know, in essence, creating a, a job object that, that collects information, we can, watch and detect if something bad has happened to an application that would have caused it to fail. Uh, okay. One scenario, for example, is I can watch and see if you try to create a new folder in program files, and then you try to put an executable file into that folder. Right? There are virtualization events that will show up in the event log that the program compatibility system can also go look at. And we can look at that and go, hey, that looks like the behavior of an installer because that's what installers do. They create directories and program files, and they try to drop executable files in there. So then we'll ask, hey, it looks like you had something that was trying to be an installer. Would you like me? And I didn't spot it because we have some installer detection, but it's not perfect. Right. I didn't spot it. Would you like me to try again, this time running as an administrator, which you would need to be in order to install this program? It's kind of like the Clippy for application compatibility. Right. I think I think you're trying to do this. Would you like to do that? Uh, 
little bit less offensive than Clippy. I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, I can't stand PCA." Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but, nowhere near nowhere near as annoying, of course, but but analogous at least in terms of what it's doing. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, but but here's here's the catch though. In order for it to pop up, it has to watch you doing something naughty. That means you get one failure before you fix it. So right. from the perspective of someone who's running IT for an entire organization, A, they don't want everyone to have one failure before their program works. Right. Sure. Right. And B, a lot of the fixes it recommends, you know, a lot of the scenarios it detects are scenarios running as uh, administrator. Like that's their solution. It's a, you know, sort of the, you know, big hammer to just sort of pound in whatever looks vaguely like a nail. You know, yes, okay. it'll probably work, but there may be more elegant ways to fix it without giving someone that privilege. Um, so because a lot of people are going towards the non-admin desktop, and because people don't like their users to see failure, they'll use that in the test labs, you know, in an enterprise environment. If that pops up, they'll go, oh, here's something I need to go and investigate. But in production, okay. a lot of people will either turn off, you know, and you can configure it via group policy, some of the scenarios that, you know, for example, will result in elevation requests because in a lot of, you know, configurations, people just say auto-deny elevation requests for my standard users. They don't have credentials anyway, so why give them a credential box, um, you know, or else just turn off the feature altogether in production. Um, yeah. You know, in an enterprise, that's that's somewhat typical in, in, in once you get to a, a fairly well-managed point. At home, however, you don't have an IT pro running your shop, so yeah. One failure is better, and then the rest success is certainly better than infinite failures. Sure, right. But it makes sense to me that this is something we figure out in the lab. With you do the install, you see the error messages. You, I mean, the big thing for me is I'm okay to elevate privileges or to find a reasonable way to solve the create a folder in the program folders and add an exe into there. But often installers do a bunch of other things that are stuff that doesn't make me happy, like writing to inappropriate places in the registry and so forth. So I guess this, the advantage of the view approach of this is to catch all of those things and know which ones I'm going to tolerate and which ones I'm not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you could pull apart and there's actually a registry location where you can see exactly what shims have been applied because the fixes that PCA uses, they're also shims. So we can apply shims via the compatibility tab. We can apply shims via the program compatibility assistant, uh, or you can also create your own custom shim database, uh, which you can use in an enterprise-wide deployment. So it's rather than just a couple of registry entries, you can specifically target it and wire it in exactly the same way that we deploy a custom shim database with every copy of Windows that's out there in the world. You know, because Windows comes with around, you know, five, 6,000 apps pre-shimmed to address known compatibility issues in commercial software. And of course the challenge gotcha. here is that, yeah. And shim, I think to some folks sounds bad. It really means that we're, it's like a, a workaround to a problem, which is really what it is. It's just that these are not mm -hmm. bad workarounds. They are effective workarounds and it makes no sense. And it's not likely that these apps are going to get fixed. Yeah. And when it kind of depends on, you know, a lot of variables as to when you would want to use this approach. Right. So when I talk to an enterprise customer about, you know, hey, when are we going to use this? Are we going to use this? You know, the first barrier is obviously, hey, I've never heard of this. I don't know what to do with it. Um, 
why would I be using this mysterious technology that no one knows anything about? Well, we use it a ton. We use it in XP to get all of the 9X software working, right? So tons and tons of games in there right. uh, that are legacy right. from XP. Uh, we use it in Vista. The big thing we hit with Vista is all of the UAC and the standard user issues. So we did a lot of work there, um, and that's where we find most of those popping up. So we explain what that is, and then we start thinking about, well, when would I want to use it? Right Now, if I need support from my vendor, well, we think about it, right? I have an application that I know doesn't work, because if it worked, I wouldn't need a shim. Right. If it's no not to work, what are the odds that the vendor supports it? <laughs> Probably pretty low. <laughs> exactly. I've actually come across exactly two commercial pieces of software where they the customer got support for the shim version. You know, One of them was because... You know, this particular customer represented about 65, 70% of the market share for the, for the ISV. Right. Yeah, that would so they been. had a little bit of pull with them. Uh, and the other um, was a case where the, the fix, the update for Vista compatibility was just a custom shim database. So they actually used that as their solution. Now, we don't necessarily recommend that, but here's a fully supported thing. As long as you install these shims, we'll support it. But for the most part, you don't get support. Right. So you start thinking about it as, Either A, the vendor's gone, right? they've gone out of business, so I can't get an updated version. The source code's gone, no one can get it, and so I'll use this to keep it working for now. Right. Sure. And uh, typically in that case, I'll start thinking about, well, if if the vendor's out of business, this really is bringing it to the you know, surfacing the fact that the vendor's out of business, and that kind of represents some long-term risk for me. Uh, so, so perhaps I want to start thinking about what I want to do to replace that. Yeah, software. migrating away from it. Right. Because if anything else comes up, right, whether it's compatibility or security or whatever the case may be, nobody's there to fix it. Right. Yeah. I know I've been in situations where, you know, you have a, even if the vendor still exists, you know, from an IT management standpoint, you have a version of, say, a Salesforce application, automation application is one real example where you end up with application compatibility problems as you change OS versions and have had to make decisions because of, for financial reasons, that for some extended period of time, I'm not going to be able to upgrade the software, the vendor software. I have to find some way to make it work on the operating systems that I'm deploying across my enterprise. And in that kind of situation, shimming and, you know, using the application compatibility tab, you know, in Vista and things like that really is a pretty useful thing. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, this, the common scenario for this is an old version of a product. And for whatever reason, you're stuck with that old version. You know, you can't, you can't upgrade. You're not willing to upgrade for whatever reason. You're staying with that version of the, of the product. And, and the, the vendor's answer is upgrade. Regardless of what upgrading breaks, right? Yeah, that's very common, and and that and that's a challenge, and, and a lot. It's a, a conversation that a lot of people haven't thought through completely. Um, but when you start thinking about, it, I mean, what's the the one thing about software uh, that a lot of people, you know, like you, you certainly wouldn't necessarily get this feeling from everybody, but software's not like milk. Software doesn't expire; it doesn't go bad. Right. Um, so I need to think about, you know, it's not like it's a, someday it's just going to go away. Right, this could potentially be here for a really long time, um, and they also then think about the scale. Right, a lot of customers have thousands and thousands of pieces of software. I've seen as high as ninety-two thousand. If now, if upgrading my operating system meant rebuying all ninety-two thousand pieces of software, nobody can afford that. Right. Uh, so then we start thinking about, well, what do, what do we do about this? I know that software doesn't expire, and that's okay. 
Um, you know, I want to manage my risk and I want to manage my costs. Um, so the, the big conversations I like to have are if you have just tens of thousands of pieces of software out there, you know, be thinking about reducing your app proliferation. You know, 92,000 applications is too many apps. Yeah, you have other right. issues. <laughs> Compatibility <laughs> is a small one in this set of issues. Yeah, and it's and it's a big one, right? So I, I want to be actively managing when do I want to upgrade rather than just sort of saying, hey, everyone just go upgrade all these things. I want to be pretty intentional about this. I don't want to let things get right. 17 versions out of date. Yeah, at the same time, I don't want to – every time that I go and buy a new brand of milk, I don't want to have to upgrade my refrigerator, right? So I need to there, – there's, there's a balance to that, I suppose. I think that was metaphor exactly. abuse. I, I, think, I think that was metaphor abuse right there. I think probably so, but it, <laughs> it, but it, but it's true. <laughs> so, oh, the uh, I mean, the other side of this, of course, I think we've been really talking about a lot of internal apps, but this must get really hairy when you're you're talking about companies that that are shipping apps to their to their customers and, mm -hmm. uh, and dealing with those kinds yeah. of compatibilities. Like, not real shrink. Maybe they're shrink wrap apps as well, but I guess those guys have got to be on top of this more of the time they're doing their testing up front uh but do you get called in on crises like they've they've done their testing and or missed something and now they've deployed a version and what do we do oh yeah like i just i i, I remember the pain of doing a ten thousand plus deployment yeah. that the prospect of rolling back was so daunting that finding a way to patch that deployment even though it had a problem would be the preferred outcome yeah, no, and, and that certainly happens. I mean, and, and there are some customers who, you know, who are, you know, they're not really ISVs. I mean, they're they're a business who's designed to to do some to produce some product or or deliver some service, um, but they happen to have software that they share, and so they 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 have some attributes of being a software company without actually being a software company, right? You know, and they're and they're sort of looking for guidance on well, how do I test this on any configuration that any customer I have uh, could potentially have. You know, how do I sort of help manage that risk and do things in a way that's going to help me, you know, minimize any of my disruption of my customer's business? Right. Um, you know, the other aspect is, you know, how well have we taught people how to write compatible code so that they yeah. don't have to, you know, catch these things in testing and learn everything, you know, everyone doing it independently you know, can we do a better job of saying, hey, you know, here's here's how you would do this? Because I think one of the big gaps that we have in our developer documentation is you can't necessarily get all of the information you would need in a language you understand. You know, I can talk to you about how to check for the existence of a feature in C++. I'd be hard-pressed to find the same example in C Sharp or VB.net, which is what a lot of people are using in the enterprise world to build their software. Right. Although you think that a lot of, as soon as you're working in a managed language like that, a lot of these rules are automatically complied with. You just, because you're running in a managed world, you, 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 that sort of set of problems are managed. As long as, as you're writing properly in the managed world. A percentage of them certainly are. So it's, I mean, it's definitely yeah, but not one not 100%. Of, I can still pass, you know, a file argument of, you know, C colon like program file, like, which is A, a hard-coded path, and B, a protected right. location. Um, and it doesn't prevent me from doing that. I mean, all the, the heap issues, right, where I'm, or, you know, taking in, in dependencies on internal implementation, uh, those tend to go away. Yeah. But there's still plenty of ways to, you know, 
end up with something that could cause you a problem. Yeah, the the, auto, the automation and some of the the rapid ability to to write good code doesn't prevent people from necessarily writing crappy code. But these are also things I think that are almost out of the purview of the average IT guy. If somebody's hard coded a path into the app, we're at, we're at a very strong, tough disadvantage to deal with that. Yeah, there are a lot of examples of enterprises that'll have you know this install to C colon whack win NT because they just can't move over because of all their hard coded paths. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that is that's frustrating stuff. I don't think there's any. Is there what? Is there any good answers there? Is there virtual directories we could be building that would uh, overcome that? Well, there's certainly workarounds and mitigations. Right, I could create a directory junction there rather right. than actually you know installing to there uh, and resolve my hard coded paths that way. I can target specific applications with the correct file paths, Jim. I mean, there are a number of fixes. You know, the 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 more important solution would be to get people to understand how they can get those paths without hard coding them. But it's, today, it's actually fairly easy to do that. The challenge is we kind of keep changing the APIs around a little bit, particularly in the native code world. Uh, you know, Vista introduced yet another way of getting special directories that's new, uh, but only works on Vista. So probably no one's going to use that. There's a little bit of, you know, sort of catching up, and there are good reasons why we do that. You know, but I can't fault the developer for not knowing which one to pick. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, those are those are tough options there. So, Chris, any specific points around uh, what Windows Seven is going to do differently for Vista as far as compatibility is concerned? From, I mean, this is a question that I get a lot. Right? Is you know, hey, you know, initially everyone was talking Vista and compatibility, and hey, this was really hard, and you know, then all the Windows 7 information started coming out with PDC, and there's, you know, all the speculation on when the next bit of information is coming out. Uh, so people are kind of on the fence, and they're sitting still. Um, the story with application compatibility on Windows 7 versus Windows Vista is essentially this, right? There is no new special magic sauce coming in Windows 7 that's going to suddenly make all of the applications that stopped working in Windows Vista start working again. Right. It just doesn't exist. Um, because what causes them to have problems is the new security environment. Yeah, really, the enforcement right? of the rules. Standard user. These are really just the enforcement of the rules we've been told for, like you said, with the whole speeding thing. We're now having those rules enforced. And so those rules still are true, and you're going to have the same issues, whether you're in Vista or in 7. Yeah, there's a good reason for doing right. that, so we're going to do it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit harsh to do it, but people want those rules. Right? I mean, if you look at what people were saying, they're like, hey, you know, I don't want, you know, everything. And, and that's, this is sort of the, the conversation I have with, with people a lot is, you know, hey, we're not trying to restrict your ability as the administrator of your computer to do everything. But you delegate your authority to every single file you click on. So what we're trying to do is help you pick and say, okay, I'm not going to give you all of my authority. I'm going to give you a lesser subset of that. Right. Uh, we also want to make it easier for people to not have to be an administrator at all uh, to run software because you shouldn't have to be. Unless your job is to actively manipulate the computer, you should be able to run without being an admin. So all of these security settings are things that people have been asking for, and they're not something that we want to go back on. Uh, what we'd like to do is get over the compatibility hurdle till we get there. So the, the big thing is there's no new special sauce to fix things that aren't working, but at the same time, we are bending over backwards 
to make sure that anything that works on Vista continues to work on Windows 7. Uh, and not just applications that you fix yourselves. One of the, the demos that has been done in a couple of keynotes now is an app that I wrote as a shim demo um, where we take it on Windows Vista, we apply a bunch of shims, which you know I use in my sessions to teach people how to use shims, but we take that shimmed up version, we take the actual SDB file or shim database file, stick it on a USB key, move it over to a Windows 7 key, install it there, and boom, the same app, which continues to not work on Windows 7 with the shim database created on Windows Vista is still fixed. Nice. So any investments you do in fixing your applications either by changing code or by shimming them should continue to apply in Windows 7. It's a huge goal. Um, and the exceptions would be either, you know, if you're doing something really crazy, right, because there are a couple of deprecations, but you have to really kind of almost be trying to get something to be fragile to get get some of the accepted <laughs> regressions. Uh, or if you're really just taking a dependency on the internal implementation. I mean, there are a couple of pretty well-known apps that are having some problems right now because they're assuming that this function will always be located at this address in memory when this program is loaded. And all of these, you know, really yeah. sort of low-level, like, hey, if we even change a line of code, we break your app type things, those right. will break. Right. Yeah. And those are, those are things you shouldn't have done in the first place. Uh, once again, you know, we right. did hear from about Windows 7 changing UAC, giving it more granular control. But I don't think that really has much to do with Windows compatibility per se. It's more about the warnings, right? Well, it's a lot about the UX. But if you look at the slider, right, and the, my, my favorite way of referring to this is uh, Crispin Cowan, who's a, a senior PM on the UAC teams describes it as he'd like to have the UX for the slider be when the slider's all the way at the top or the most secure, the guy has his pants all the way up. And as you <laughs> pull the slider down, the pants go down. Um, but the settings that you have in Windows 7, with one exception, are all available to you via group policy in Windows Vista. Right. right? The exception is you now have the ability to say, hey, window, if you have a, if you have a component signed with a Windows certificate, uh, I can elevate silently. Right. That's really um, that's the only really the only difference, right? The rest of it is if you wanted to just sort of silently elevate everything, which is an option on the slider, right? You don't have it in the slider. You just have the on-off button in Vista, but you can go into group policy and turn that on and say auto-approve elevation requests. Right. It just means that all it takes for someone to get elevation of privileges to ask for it, so you're certainly less secure, but you had that same option on Windows Vista as you have on Windows 7. You can turn on or off the secure desktop. You have all this configuration, but it was kind of buried in group policy where a lot of people didn't really sort of understand what it was or how to operate it. So for people that want to find out more and find resources maybe on you know Microsoft's websites to learn more about application compatibility and take a dive into this, where should they go? Well, there's the TechNet Application Compatibility Center, which is part of the whole Springboard series, um, you know, of information consolidation. Um, but that's available, and, and the URL, the short link to that is just technet.com, WAC, app, compat. Uh, and then I have a blog where I kind of go into, you know, I answer questions that come into me via email. I talk about things that sort of come up as FAQs. I do some talking about shims that aren't yet documented, sort of pre-documentation, if you will. Um, at my blog, which is blogs.msdn.com slash cjax. Great. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Run As Radio.